judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. John 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that God the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, uh, well, uh, as you might have noticed, uh, this is not Isaiah. Uh, we are continuing to focus on uh, the reality of the suffering servant, uh, but we are doing it uh, in a way where we move from what Isaiah was anticipating to what Jesus demonstrated on this, this night um, before he went to the cross. Um, before we go any further, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we, uh, we pause and ask uh, that you would give us attentive hearts and ears and minds. Lord, we think of how last week we were reminded how much we need to be near the cross, and that is our prayer, that you would keep us near the cross, uh, that as we uh, look at your Son and we see you, that we would be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, you know, one of the things I most appreciate about 
um, scripture, about the Bible, is that it isn't sanitized. It isn't neat. It isn't tidy. Um, it uh, recognizes the complexity of the human condition in this world. So what I mean by that is you can have moments where God very explicitly says, I am with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. You can trust me. And that is true. And yet at the very same time, um, you have the songs of God's people recorded for us, songs of confusion, where there is this enormous challenge of being able to, to rest in that and take hold of that. So there are multiple psalms that, that ask the question, how long, O oh Lord, how long before we see your faithfulness? And there can even be the question that happens a few times in the psalms is, why do you stand far off? You know what that feels like, the feeling of that, that somehow God is not near. I mean, sometimes in certain moments we are very aware of God's presence. Um, we, we almost can kind of sense him tangibly. But there are other times, times of confusion, suffering, and sorrow, where it can be really hard to know that God is there. And so we find ourselves in some way saying, why do you hide your face? Why are you far off? The challenge is it's hard to, it's hard to see God, to know that he is near. I mean, we don't see him. And, you know, like there are other things we can't see that we can measure. So radiation, if we have a Geiger counter, you know, you can kind of point it at and click, click, click. You know if something is there that has radiation, stay away. But there's not anything like that. With God, right? There's no kind of divine meter where we can check. We, we, we have to just trust that God is there, but we don't see the reality. And so it's a very natural thing at certain times to say, God, why do you stand far off? And I was struck as I was reflecting on this passage from uh, this week on John 13, that Jesus actually, he, he is aware that his disciples are about to go through a moment just like that. They are about to go, as, as Jesus is going to the cross, he knows his disciples are going to be confused, bewildered, feeling like God is absent. And so in a real way, what happens beginning in chapter 13 is Jesus seeking to prepare his people for that moment of feeling that God is far off. And he spends some time trying to explain, trying to teach. But what I'm struck by here is the very first thing he does to try to prepare his disciples for that sense of God's absence is through an action, through him showing them that God is a God who stoops down and serves them. So, you know, one of the interesting things about this passage, and if you don't have it in front of you, I, I ask you, I invite you to do that, because we'll be, again, looking at, at, at kind of moving through many of the verses. Um, but oftentimes we are left wondering what's going on inside of Jesus' head. Rarely do we are, are we told? But here is one time when we are. Um, notice verse 3, when it says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God. And there is so much there. The Father had given all things into his hands. There's not a single person in Scripture other than Jesus that anything like this is said of that God has entrusted everything into the hands of this person, has given him the authority, the, the ability to make decisions. There's an enormous 
amount that's said right in that. And then in addition, it says how Jesus knows that he has come from God. Um, this is pointing us back to the very beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus understands in a way that I don't fully understand, but he understands in this moment that he he existed long before he was born, that he has come from God, and that at the end of all of this, after he dies and rises again, he is returning to the Father. This verse, in, in really succinct fashion, is reminding us of the extraordinary truth that when we see Jesus, we are seeing God in action. We, we've already said that one of the real challenges of, of being able to grasp God being involved in this world is that we don't see him. Like, it's not like we could have a behind-the-scenes kind of documentary where we see kind of God's hand and things. He's, he doesn't have a body. He's, he's not visible. And, and even if in some ways he, he were, he is so far beyond us that we could not grasp him. Our minds cannot understand. That's why we have such a hard time seeing his presence, because he's so different from us. And, and God recognizes that. And so God, in his love, shrinks himself down into human form so that we can see him. His son becomes one of us so that we can actually go, oh, that's what God is like. That's what God is doing. When, when verse 3 is giving us this, this is what Jesus knows. It, it's telling us that whatever Jesus is about to do, when you see what he is going to do, you are actually seeing how God is, what God does. Now, if we were to just stop here uh, and we were to try to predict what Jesus would do to show God to us and to his disciples, what, what would we say? What would we imagine might come next? Well, I can imagine saying, Jesus, knowing that he came from God, became glorious, chose like in the transfiguration, chose to show his beauty and glory to the disciples that they might realize he is the king. Or you can imagine, I think of in the Old Testament, there's this one moment where Elisha opens the eyes of his servant so he can see all of the angels around. And you can imagine Jesus knowing that he came from God, calling down the angels so the disciples can see this. But, but that's not what happens, is it? Jesus, knowing that he is God, stoops down and cleans off the muck between his disciples. So let's, let's try to imagine this moment, um, this extraordinary moment. This is evening, it's dinner time, and as was the custom then, you would have people who were at a table, the table was low, and they'd be just kind of reclining on their elbow, lying down on the floor. Uh, you even have in this description, when, you know, some people like putting, resting their head up against the person they're right next to. I mean, intimacy, connection, <laughs> Friends eating together at the same table. That sounds really good right now to me. And um, there's a lot of probably fun and conversation, maybe a little bit of anxiety because they are in Jerusalem and they know that in Jerusalem there are people who are out to get Jesus. But, but it would have been probably a relaxed time until the very middle of their evening together, Jesus stands up and suddenly things become 
Now, some of you know I don't do very well in um, in moments of awkwardness. Uh, I was watching a show even this last week. You know how some shows like The Office seem to just kind of want to bring you through the cringiest moments. There was a moment like that in one of the shows I was watching, and Jennifer could tell you I was writhing. Like I got off the couch, I was hiding my face. There was just this uh, this sympathetic cringe. And, and if you know what that's like, I want you to know that's how the disciples were feeling in this moment when Jesus gets up and begins to wash his disciples' feet. See, it seems like uh, that somehow his disciples' feet weren't washed. They were eating without wash feet. And that was unusual, and not only unusual, honestly, it was it was also unpleasant because we need to realize that these sandaled feet um, were not just caked with dust from walking on a path. I mean, they were walking through Jerusalem where you have all sorts of donkeys and horses and other animals, where you have people in their houses dumping their junk out onto the streets, and there are no sewers. And so these feet would have been filthy and smelly. And, that, and that's why it was common that when someone came in for a meal that, that their feet would get washed. But it's not just anyone who is supposed to do the feet washing. This was a task that was kept for the very lowest of the lowest servants. And, and you can understand why. In some ways, it was almost the, the, the thing to show you that you were the bottom of the totem pole if you were the one who had this job. When, one commentator describes it like this, and I think it's helpful. He says, most foot washing in the ancient world was a menial task. It involved washing off not just dust and mud, but also the remains of human excrement, which was tipped out of houses into the streets, and animal waste, which was left on country roads and town streets. The task of doing this was therefore normally assigned to slaves or servants of low status, so much so that foot washing was virtually synonymous with slavery. And yet here you have Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one who was there and through whom supernovas and galaxies were scattered and, and creatures were made, this glorious God taking off his outer garments, putting a towel around his waist, taking a bucket of water, and going disciple by disciple where he took off the sandal, and he started with the ankles, and he wiped off the dirt and the crap and the stench between the toes, underneath the toenails of each disciple. And the disciples were aghast. They could not imagine. They could not believe what they were seeing. And, and so Peter, who is always the first person to speak in awkward situations, it seems, when Jesus comes to Peter and, and asks to take off the sandal, Peter protests. He says, Lord, you will not wash my, you shall never wash my feet, right? You know, he's actually the first thing he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And, and those two words, you and my, are really the primary ones. They're the ones emphasized in Greek. Lord, you, you of all people shouldn't be doing this. And, and you certainly shouldn't be doing this to me. I mean, this was the person that Peter wanted to admire. 
the one who he wanted to have as his mentor, as his role model, not only that, as his king that he would devote his life to in service. He wanted to look up to him, not look down on him. You know, I wonder, even as I'm thinking about this, about how Peter could not fathom how his king could do this, I wonder if you and I, or I should say more personally, I wonder if I sometimes don't have a place for God in these terms, in the way I think of God. Maybe you are the same way. Here's what I mean. Do, do you think sometimes that God is so important, so involved in the big things of this world that he really doesn't have space to have attention to your bank account or to the stomach ache that you're a little worried about or to the project that you have to deal with or the things are even kind of more embarrassing for him to look at like your pornography addiction or the hard relationship that you're in the middle of or, or whatever it is. Do you, do you have space in your understanding of God to recognize that he could be the God who stoops down to wash feet. So, so Peter has a hard time seeing Jesus in this way, but I actually think the bigger issue for him is not just that Jesus is doing it, but that Jesus is doing it for him. All right, do you wash my feet? And as I've thought about it, and I've tried to imagine what Peter must be experiencing, I, I totally get this. So, like probably some of you, I, I sometimes struggle to know how to ask people for help. Um, you know, it's if it's a small thing, it's not a big deal. Like asking for like you know borrow a rake, you know, I'm fine doing that. But but it's a lot harder when you're asking someone to do something really unpleasant, right? So I try to imagine would it be like for some reason I couldn't wash my own feet and and they are caked with all sorts of stuff that I don't want to think about. If they smell like a sewer, imagine, I try to imagine myself having to ask someone, hey, would you please do me a favor and, and wash my feet for me? And I, I can't, I, I don't think I can mentally get there. I mean, I, I think I would rather just kind of go on my own and, and stink in a closet than have to actually do something like that for most people. And, and so for Peter, think, Peter, this is, this is the person he's wanting to impress. This is his master, his king. He, he really doesn't want to have to say, to let Jesus do this for him. So, so he says, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And we get it, don't we? And then we have, in some ways, the second real surprise of our passage when when Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now think of that. Peter has been with Jesus for, for years now. He has followed him wherever Jesus is going. He has listened to Jesus. He has sought to preach the gospel in Jesus' name. And yet right now Jesus is saying, even despite all of that, if in this moment you refuse me washing you. You can have no part with me. You can't be my follower, Peter, if you won't let me do this. He's saying, Peter, you need to understand the nature of this relationship. If you want to follow me, you first have to let me serve you. And I think it's at this point 
if not beforehand, that we are meant to understand that what Jesus is doing here is about much more than, than feet and washing feet. That this is an enacted parable meant to point to something bigger. It is meant to help his disciples to understand what he is about to do. In fact, our passage already is, is kind of giving us hints of that. At the very beginning of the passage, it says that Jesus knew that his hour had come. What, what hour is that talking about? And then it speaks of having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. That, that's a beautiful um, description of what the last few years have been. He has been loving his own. And now it says he's going to love them to the end. What does that mean? To love them to the end, to love them completely. And then even here, in Jesus' interaction with Peter, as Peter says, what are you doing? Jesus says, you know, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but after you will. After what? Well, after his death. The hour he's speaking about is the hour of his death. To love his disciples completely to the end is to love them unto death. He's saying, you will only understand this after you've seen me go to the cross. Because that's, that's what this is about. You remember last week how I said that, that we, in many ways, are people who are stuck in this abandoned well in the middle of muck and filth. And, and what Jesus, the servant of God, does, the only way to save us is for him to go even deeper in the muck and, and to lift us out. Well, that's, that's what Jesus is, is talking about here as well. He, he is saying that he needs to stoop down. That when he is going to the cross, he is going into the muck and filth and stench of the worst parts of us, and he is washing our feet. That, that the God of the universe is stepping into the worst parts of us, and on the cross, he is washing our feet so that we might be clean. And if we understand that that's what Jesus is showing, that he is explaining the cross by this foot washing, and we realize, or we should realize, that what he is saying to Peter, he's actually saying to all of us as well. When he's saying, unless you let me wash your feet, you can have no part of me. Now this is really important. This is actually something that I think many people never understand, and so because of that, never actually really understand the Christian gospel. This in some ways might even be the very hardest part of following Christ. The call to follow Christ is the call to let him serve us. It's hard for many of us because we we build our lives around never having to ask other people for really embarrassing forms of help. I mean, we, or I should say I, so often, if I'm really honest with myself, am seeking to have people like me. I, I don't want to be an inconvenience to them. If I 
have a problem, I'm going to do my best to fix it on my own. If I notice a flaw with me, I will try to change it so that it's not going to, to bring people low. And, and whether we realize it or not, that is the very posture we're most inclined to bring to God. We want God to like us. We don't want to be a burden to God. We want to fix things so that we don't need to have to ask God for help. And yet, Jesus is saying to you and to me that that is definitely not going to work. He says to you and to me, look, I already see, I already see the corruption, the infection that lies at the very heart of you. I see the things that you hide from others. I see the things that you sometimes hide from yourself your pride, the way that you are absorbed with yourself, the things you are ashamed of, the cruelty, the, the way that you are angry towards others, all of those things that when you see truly, you turn your face away in shame. I see, and I want to draw near to you to wash you. If you want to be with me, you need to let me wash your feet. Have you, have you done that? Have you come to the place where you have recognized that before you can ever do anything in service to God, you first need the God of the universe to serve you? What does that mean to let Jesus wash your feet? Well. Um, it begins by honesty. Um, so often I've realized even when I pray, I try to kind of make myself be a certain way or feel a certain way so that I can be kind of approaching God appropriately. And, and that's not what this is. What this is is being as transparent with God as possible and just recognizing before God just how much of a problem we have. It's one of the reasons in, in church we have this posture of confessing weekly because we need to open up and acknowledge acknowledge all the things that we'd rather pretend aren't true. It begins with that, but then it moves from just being honest to simply asking Jesus for help. You know, one of my favorite stories about, I don't know if you know much about Johann Bach, but at the end of every composition, he would wrote, write the initials SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Many know that. Fewer people, I think, know that he also wrote the initials for the words Jesus help at the very beginning. And, and that really could be the initials that we should sign at the beginning of every day. Jesus help. That is the fundamental posture as we recognize our failing. Jesus help. And then as we do that, I think the third part of allowing Jesus to wash our feet is to take Jesus at his word, to take God at his word when he sends, says that those who acknowledge their failings before him are cleansed, that Jesus at the cross has truly washed us of our sins in God's sight, and he is continuing to do that to make us more and more beautiful. Jesus says, let me near, let me wash your feet. And let me say, as we come to allow that to happen, and, and I think on one hand, there is this kind of initial 
moment where we allow that. That's kind of when we become a Christian. But really, it is an ongoing process of learning to accept this. And as we come to accept this, it changes us in a, in a few really important ways. One is it allows us to have kind of more of a, a, a lightness, a freedom about the way we are. I've heard someone say that people who don't understand this truth, who haven't allowed gods to be in this place in their life, are the people who keep on saying, that's not funny. That's not funny. Because they're still sensitive, because they're still trying to protect something about themselves. Whereas when you have recognized just how messed up you are, and you know that God knows it, and he has drawn near, and he has done something about it, and he loves you, you don't need to protect yourself anymore. You don't need to be sensitive anymore. You're already cleansed. It allows there to be a lightness and a freedom. And what's more, and I think this is why Jesus did this, especially right before going to the cross, it arms you with the ability to hold fast in the moments where God seems absent. Because wherever we look, whatever we see, we will have a hard time knowing what God is doing, but he has already shown us who he is. He is the God who stoops low and cleans out the muck between our toes. He is the God who in his son gave everything to cleanse us. So as we look around at our lives, do we honestly think that the God who is willing to go that far, to draw that near to us, is going to remain far off in this time? Look, I, I certainly can't tell you exactly what God is doing, but I can guarantee that the things that are the messiest and scariest and the places that feel the most alone, God is there. He is there in the hospital with those who are barely able to breathe. He is there with us when we're looking at our bank accounts and wondering. He is there in every moment because he is the God who stoops down low in love to cleanse us of the things that we most abhor about ourselves. And when you understand that, it not only gives us this kind of confidence and this lightness, but it also enables us to be free to love. Did you notice how that's how Jesus concludes? He says, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. See, when you come to understand that the God of the universe, who is so glorious, has chosen to see the most unpleasant things about you and yet has still chosen to draw near in love. That, that changes you. You know, we are in a time where in some ways it is a pressure cooker of relationships. We are stuck with just a few people and are with them all the time. And, and oftentimes, it can be a really good thing. You, we have a chance to kind of grow in our relationships with family, and that's really valuable. But it also means, honestly, that that means we get to see the other people's flaws even more clearly. And it can be hard sometimes to be patient. And yet, we have a God who has seen much worse about us, and yet he loves us, and he has drawn near. And if you can taste that, then that will enable you towards your spouse, towards your parents, towards your siblings, towards your kids to not move away from the unpleasant things, but to 
to draw near and to show love. In one of my favorite hymns on Christ the Solid Rock I Stand has this line, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. And I want to invite you to do exactly that. What we see here is meant to be like a pair of glasses that we put on so that we can see everything better. When we see Jesus stooping down, we see who our God really is. And we know what that means. Or we can know that even if we don't understand what God is doing, that he is here and that he loves us. I'd like to invite us now just to take a couple minutes. I've mentioned about how confession is just kind of part of our daily, weekly practice. It is our chance to kind of turn before God again and open things up and say, Lord Jesus, help. And so I want to invite you to spend a couple minutes in silence doing exactly that. And then I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment. 